You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Take a moment to consider the question, why did God become human? I wonder sometimes whether or not we take the question for granted. After all, we, we come to Christmas time and we sing Christmas carols about the incarnation, about God taking on human flesh, flesh in Jesus, and we, we read the text. But how many Christmas seasons go by and we don't take a minute, minute individually or even corporately to, to pause and consider why God needed to Take on human flesh. Perhaps we've wondered, why was this necessary? Why couldn't God just save us without Jesus being born in Bethlehem? Why couldn't God just powerfully from on high in heaven execute salvation in some other way? Why was it necessary for a human baby to be born? And to live? And to suffer? Like, isn't there a way to avoid the the pain that necessarily comes with wearing human skin? And I wonder if we don't neglect that question sometimes. I wonder if we haven't attended deeply to the question, why did God find it necessary to become human to save us? You likely know that we're not the first ones to ask that question. The church has wrestled with this question since the writing of the New Testament in the first century and into the opening, uh, the early centuries of the church, second, third, fourth century. There was even a bishop in the fourth century who wrote a book, an entire book, answering, aiming to answer that question on the incarnation of the Word of God. And he addresses that why question. Why is this? necessary. So the church has wrestled with this question from the start. And we know the answer has something to do with our salvation, but are we clear? Have we really taken on board the absolute necessity of God dwelling in human flesh? So we're going to take a look at these two texts today. Luke chapter 1 and the angel's announcement to Mary and 1 Corinthians 15, which feels like a rather different text but it sheds light and illumines the questions that we bring to the nativity narratives. And as we hold these two texts side by side, and as we ask this question, why is it necessary for God to become human? Why is this important? Why does it have to be this way? We find out, quite clearly actually, That God won't save the human race without a human representative. God is committed to saving us, to working in history to rescue a people for Himself through human beings. Which is stunning, isn't it? I mean, you're thinking God, all-powerful, almighty, enthroned in heaven, and for some strange reason, if He's going to save the world, He he decides to do it through a frail body that is subject to death. Like these. 
It seems counterintuitive to us. Striking, surprising. The list of synonyms goes on. And yet, we see again and again in Scripture that God won't save the human race without a human representative. This is one of the major pieces of the larger argument that comes through 1 Corinthians 15, which we don't typically read as a nativity text, but it very much is built on the reality of Jesus' birth. So listen to these words again. But in fact, Paul says in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died. It's helpful to remember that 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's longest sustained argument regarding future resurrection of the body. So throughout the New Testament, Paul and the other New Testament writers offer us a picture of the future. And it's a picture not of escaping the world, but of the redemption of the world. And it's a picture of the world redeemed and inhabited by resurrected bodies, human bodies. So 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians 15. Whatever is true of Jesus in His resurrection will also be true of everyone who belongs to Jesus in His resurrection. So Paul begins the chapter declaring the gospel of Christ's resurrection. And it turns out there are some people in Corinth who have denied future bodily resurrection. They seem to have affirmed that Jesus has been raised. They're happy with Easter. Jesus has been raised from the dead. But they haven't connected the dots between Jesus' resurrection and their future. And so Paul says in chapter 12, now, I mean, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So it sounds like they affirm the initial proposition, Christ has been raised, but they reject the conclusion that they will be raised. Some of them anyway, not all of them, some of them. How can some of you say there's no future resurrection of the body? So they haven't connected the dots, and the rest of the chapter, Paul wants to connect the dots. Before he starts connecting those dots, he articulates the consequences of denying future bodily resurrection of believers. And it basically amounts to, there's no such thing as Christianity. If you read through verses 12 through 19, without, for Paul, without future bodily resurrection, then our proclamation of the gospel is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God. If the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we've hoped in Christ. So for Paul, this is one of those primary doctrines. Future bodily resurrection. Believers will be raised bodily from the dead when Jesus comes back. It's one of those primary tier one doctrines to the extent that if it's not true, go home. Go do something else. Go back to bed. Get a little more sleep before the games come on later on. That's how important this is. If it's not true for Paul, your sins are not forgiven, Jesus is not raised from the dead, your faith is futile, and we might as, all, we might as well all go do something else. That's how crucial the future resurrection of believers is. 
Now, in verse 20, Paul begins the positive argument and positive vision for the resurrection of Jesus. So he sort of explained the consequences if that small group of Corinthians, if they're right and there's no future resurrection of the body, these are the consequences. We don't want to go there. But here's the positive vision. Here's the good thing. Here's the glorious thing. Verse 20, which we read together a moment ago, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died. And that language of first fruits implies what? More fruits. Like first fruits is just the first part. It's the initial. There's more coming. And so if Jesus is the first fruits, there's second fruits and third fruits. More fruit. And who's the more fruit? Raise your hand if you're more fruit. All right, we got a few folks. We kind of start, we're connecting the dots, aren't we? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. And that, friends, is Christmas. We may not read it that way normally. Maybe in January or June, July, I'm doing my devotional and I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15 and I read, since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. And the last thing when I'm reading that in July to pop in my mind is an angel's message to Mary about a baby she's going to have here before too long. But that's exactly what underlies that claim, isn't it? Paul has a big picture story that serves as the foundation for what he says here about the resurrection of the body and about how Jesus saves us. Death came through a human being, and that means the resurrection of the dead must also come through a human being. Now here's the question. Do we know any human beings who can accomplish the resurrection of the dead? I'd ask you to raise your hand, but nobody gets to. None of us have that power. I don't have the power to raise my body from the dead. You don't have the power to raise your body from the dead. All of us are frail, weak, and desperate when we come into this world. We are under the power of death. We are under the power of sin. And we are that because we have Adam as our representative. You see how Paul works this way. Death came into the world through who? A human being. And what's his name? His name is Adam. And he's got the whole garden of Eden and tree of the knowledge of good and evil in his mind. That's the kind of story foundation of Paul's theology here. God created human beings in His own image to be His representatives. Here, I've made a world and I've given it to you. Here, go out and cultivate it. And fill it with image-bearing creatures. Sounds a lot like in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, God intends to have human beings as His representatives, doesn't it? I mean, God could go cultivate things on His own and make them beautiful but he would rather enlist his creatures in the privilege of filling the world with his beauty. God desires to work through human beings from the start. But the problem, as you know, is that we rebel. <laughs> and Adam decides 
to take what doesn't belong to him. He has life, not because it's inherent in him, but because he is rightly related to the one who breathed into his lungs. But when he rebels against that one, when he says, your life isn't what I want, I want life on my terms, he begins to die. He begins returning to corruption, spiritually, physically. And everyone who comes into the world after that, everyone who participates in his covenant, who has him as our representative, kind of like a team captain, when your team captain goes out on the field before the game, they flip the coin, captain calls the toss, he calls the toss for who? For the rest of the team. Adam called it for all of us when he ate that fruit. Everybody who's wearing the same colored jersey as Adam gets the consequences that he received. Slavery to sin, corruption, and death. And Paul says, if a human being got us into this mess, it's going to take another human being to get us out. There's something about the way God has designed us. And this isn't a limitation on God's power. It's not as if we're saying, hey God, you know, you could just zap us with salvation and roll with it. Nobody has to die and suffer and all those kinds of things. Sounds kind of painful for you. Can't we just avoid that? Somehow, in His wisdom, in the mystery of His will, God has determined that this is the best way. He wants to work through human beings. He wanted to work through Adam. He wants to work through you. We've made a mess of it. We don't have the power to set ourselves free from sin and death. So God has to do it. Trouble is, God's already committed to working through human beings. So what has to happen? Mary has to have a baby. And so the angel shows up and says, God has found favor with you. And she's kind of surprised. She's perplexed. She probably knows that she's fallen short of the glory of God. Like all of us. She's waiting for a Messiah. She's waiting for a rescuer. Like all of us. But the angel says, you found favor with God. You're going to have a baby. And your baby... that you conceive in your womb, you will give Him the name Jesus and He will be great. And He will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever in His kingdom. Of His kingdom there will be no end. God only saves us through one who participates in our humanity. And he does this because the problem was created by one of us. Therefore, the solution only comes through one of us. If death comes through a human being, the solution to death is resurrection. 
bodily resurrection. Like dying and going to heaven isn't another, like that's not the solution. That's peace. But it's just another way of saying this person is dead. Sometimes I'll get to funerals and we'll say, well, this loved one is more alive than ever. But she's not. She's more dead than ever. Because her body is buried under the ground. And there's no beating heart. And there's no air breath in the lungs. And there's no brain activity. That's dead. Doesn't mean she's not at peace. Present with Christ. But as long as the body's in the grave, the word we use for that is dead. She will be more alive than ever when Jesus returns. And he is the only one who can accomplish that. Not merely because he's God. Yes, because he's God and only God gives life to the dead. But also because he's human. And we needed a human being to bring us out of death in the same way that we had a human being bring us into it. If Adam brought these consequences to us, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's son, brings them out, brings us out. Salvation comes through a human because death came through a human. God won't save the human race without a human representative. And the number one name is Jesus. Now this impacts the way we think about God. This shapes the way we think about God. And it challenges some of the dominant, character, some of the dominant perceptions, perceptions we have about God. The incarnation... God taking on human form to save human beings challenges some of the perceptions of God that we have. I read an interview recently with Tim Keller. Some of you have used uh, his material on our Wednesday night groups. And Keller said, the incarnation pushes back against two major false notions of God. One of them, he said, is the God of moralism. And this God of moralism, popularly conceived is basically the God who, who says you can save yourself. You just need to be a good person. You need to behave the right way. Open the door for people when they come along. Speak nicely to them. Just be a, you know, a southern gentleman or a southern belle. And that's basically the same thing as being a Christian. Just, just be a good person. And if you've been in church for a long time and you heard the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone preached for a long time, you may be at a place in your life or your journey where that seems kind of strange. It does to me, because for decades I've been immersed in preaching and in study of the Scripture has been affirmed to me again and again and again and again, you can't do this, dude. You don't have what it takes. You are helpless. But if you go outside these walls where that gospel is not heard frequently and weekly even, 
You will encounter people, I guarantee you, because I've encountered them, who believe that all we have to do to go to heaven, which is really sort of wrong-headed anyway, but who believe that all we have to do to be saved is be generally nice. I had lunch with a guy not long ago, and we had this conversation. And he straight up said to me, if you are righteous, you'll go to heaven. And I said, what is righteous? How, how do you define that? And he's like, just, you know, read the Bible and just kind of general. He, he wasn't even like, get it letter for letter. It was just kind of like, get the gist of it. Like if you, if you basically live in a generally upstanding, favorable way, you'll be saved. And he's not the first person I've met who said things like that. I remember one time I sat down on an airplane. We were all, all five of us got on this airplane. So two parents and I think we had three kids at the time. <laughs> we did. Jackson was a baby. And we're sitting there and you can imagine what it's like to fly on a plane with three kids. And so we're shuffling children around and I sit down and there's a guy next to me and he's not a particularly devoted Hindu. And he told me that his mother wasn't terribly pleased with him because he wasn't particularly devoted. She was. And the reason he wasn't particularly devoted is because he thought all the major religions were basically the same thing. Just be a good person so you can go to heaven. Multiple times in my life, when I get outside of the church bubble, everybody knows what the church bubble is, right? This is the church bubble. <laughs> but multiple times in my life, when I get outside the church bubble and actually talk to people who are not in our doors every week, it's frequent that people say, basically, yeah, if there's a God, he'll be happy if I'm a generally nice person. But here's the thing. If that's what God is like, we don't need Jesus. And Jesus never comes up in those conversations. If that's what God's like, we don't need the incarnation. So if we're asking, why did God become human? One reason is because being a nice person won't reconcile you to God. Why did God become human? Because being a good person isn't good enough. Why did the angel have to show up and talk to Mary? Because being respectable will not save you. The guy on the plane was kind of surprised when I said, that's not what Christianity teaches. Wait, what? We had a long conversation about how Christianity was more about your inability to be a good person than the requirement that you be a good person. God became human because we don't have the ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and live a life that commends itself to God. So the incarnation debunks this God of pure moralism. Just be a good person and you'll be fine. You don't need Jesus if that's your religion. But it's a false religion, so come to Jesus. The other one Keller said was the God of relativism. Lots of isms here. Moralism says just be a good person and you'll be fine. Relativism says no one's really lost. Just live faithfully to your own truth and you'll be fine. But again, and, and again, friends, if you haven't encountered that, you need to get out more. Because <laughs> it's everywhere. You got your truth, I've got my truth. There's no such thing as real truth. 
So, you know, just be true to yourself. It's everywhere. Ubiquitous. All over the place. You will hear it in schools. You will hear it in workplaces. You will hear it at the country club. You will hear it everywhere you go. Just be true to yourself. It's called relativism because everything's relative to you. If that's true, we don't need Jesus. If that's true, we don't need the Incarnation. Why did God become human? Because you, you can be true to yourself, <laughs> but Jesus became human because your heart it will mislead you. Because, as Scripture says, the human heart is deceptive and dark. So yeah, follow your heart, but it'll take you straight to hell. The Incarnation looks at a world committed to relativism. You've got your truth. You've got your truth. Everybody's got their truth. Jesus steps into the world and says, I am the truth. And His presence immediately debunks every other claim to truth. Truth is a person. And He is not relative. He is He is the Son of the Most High. And He sits upon the throne of His ancestor David. And He reigns over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. He is the human representative. Yes, He is God. And by emphasizing His humanity, we're not trying to de-emphasize His godness. I think we tend to emphasize His godness and forget to talk about His humanity. But this is Christmas time, folks. This is all about the incarnation. This is all about the humanity of Jesus. So these weeks, well, every week, but these weeks we're talking about the humanity of Jesus. We're talking about how He's fully human. So yes, He is the unique Son of God, but He is also one of us. And as one of us, He can rescue us. And He is exhibit A, substantiating the point that God will not save the world without a human representative. He's not going to sit on high and zap us with salvation without doing it through a human body. The body of Jesus hung on the cross, the body of Jesus raised from the dead, demonstrates unquestionably and permanently that God will not save the human race without a human representative. And that sheds light on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, doesn't it? I think Mary is helpful in this way. As a model for us, she doesn't understand everything, does she? This angel shows up, young girl, Surprising news, you know. She's in a difficult place. We are told specifically that she's perplexed. Ever been perplexed? You know what it feels like. She doesn't understand everything. But what does she do? 
she offers herself to God's purposes. Because she understands, friends. She doesn't understand everything, but she understands this one thing. God won't save the human race without a human representative. And she's going to be the mother of that one. And even in her case, God is what? God is working through a human body to bring his Savior into the world. It's a remarkable thing. God offers dignity to women in a way no one else does. In a world where women are frequently denigrated, God says, I'm going to save the world, and I'm going to use a mama to do it. I'm going to bring the Messiah into the world through Mary. And her response is, I don't understand, but here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And I wonder, friends, I wonder if we can say that. I don't understand, God. I don't understand what you're up to right now. I don't understand why these things happened. I don't understand why that person died. I don't understand why you've called me to do this. I don't understand where you've put me in this position. I don't understand why they're saying those things about me. I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm perplexed. I don't get it. Anybody? We know what that feels like, right? We know what that feels like. But I wonder if we, like Mary, can respond to God by saying, yes, I don't understand, but let it be with me according to your word. I don't understand why they're treating me this way. It feels so unfair. I don't understand why I'm dealing with this disease. It feels so unjust. I don't understand. But let it be with me according to your word. Here I am, the servant of God. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to enable all of us to say that. Apart from Him, we, we can't offer ourselves to God. Apart from His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His perpetual intercession for us even now, apart from that, we can't offer ourselves to God. We can only serve our own interests and we come into the world with that posture don't we serving ourselves and Jesus has come he has come he's not sitting up in heaven looking down at us going get it right O'Reilly he's not off to the side looking across the way with scorn He said, I know what it feels like to be hungry. I know what it feels like to need my mother. I know what it feels like for my friends to talk about me behind my back. I know what it feels like to be betrayed. Salvation only comes through someone who knows what it feels like. We kind of treat Christmas, and rightly so, as this shiny, glossy, wrapping paper and bow kind of thing. But one thing I've discovered over 
the last several years is that a lot of us put on a wrapping paper exterior and have broken hearts on the inside. And we show up at church and we show up at Christmas parties and we laugh and we have a good time and that's great and it's good. But we don't feel like we can be honest about our suffering and our hurt and our pain and our brokenness. And so we take all of that darkness and we wrap it up. And we keep it in. Jesus is the light who has shined into the world to expose the things that we hide, the brokenness and the hurt and the sin, to expose them, not so He can exploit them, but so He can heal them. And He knows what it's like to be vulnerable because God won't save the human race without a human representative, and He is that one. He's one of us. So I wonder today, how many of us have been unwilling to say, here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Because we're afraid if we say that, God might actually take it seriously. He might call us to do something crazy <laughs> or uncomfortable. We might have to get vulnerable or transparent. We might have to make some sacrifices. Or we might have to make some partnerships with people we'd rather not get involved in. And we've been unwilling to say, here I am. Maybe it's because we just don't understand what He's up to. We hear all this talk about God fully human and fully God and Jesus and birth and death, and we think, man, it's just not clear to me. I don't understand that. How can I offer myself to a God I don't understand? And the answer to that question, friends, is we don't have to understand everything about Jesus to know that He loves us. Because He stepped down from the throne of heaven to be born of Mary and to suffer for us. And you don't suffer for people if you don't love them more than they can imagine. And you can trust someone who will bleed for you. His name is Jesus. So we don't have to understand everything about Him. We don't have to understand how God can be human. Notice the question wasn't, how can God be human? How can Jesus be God and human? The question is, why? He wants to work through people with skin. He wants to save the world through human bodies. Cover to cover in the Bible. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Mary to Jesus to the apostles to you. Jesus unites us to Himself in His death and resurrection so that He can give the world the good news of His self-giving love 
through your bodies, your vocal cords, your tongues, your mouth, your gestures. Jesus came to save us so we could participate in His vocation. So I wonder if you're willing to pray Mary's prayer today. It's okay to say, God, I don't understand all this. But you are good, and I trust you, and I am your servant. Let it be with me according to your word. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.